Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the People Processes Podcast, where we dive into the updates, interviews, and yes, processes that will help your organization thrive. My name is Rami Alijil, and my goal is to help HR managers and business owners create an environment where their people are their organization's competitive advantage. Today we have some updated best practices regarding pay equity and some guidance around that, along with some best practice tips for I-9 compliance. Oh, and don't forget, we're available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, and Google Play. Check us out, subscribe. You can also find us at peopleprocesses.com, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So let's dive right in. Uh, Acknowledging Equal Pay Day on April 10th, uh, Safarth Shaw's Pay Equity Group released a pair of reference guides on pay equity that are aimed at enhancing employers' compliance efforts. Uh, We have links to both of those on our website at peopleprocesses.com, and I'm very interested. They're very interesting and great uh, tools. The 2018 Trends and Developments in Pay Equity Litigation Report and the second annual 50-state pay equity desktop reference. The law firm practice group also pointed to several emerging trends that I think are interesting for us to take a look at. One, amped up pay laws. While California, New York, and Massachusetts led the way in adopting stricter state pay equity laws, other states, including Maryland and Oregon, have soon followed suit. The trend continues in 2018 with New Jersey and Washington passing similar, uh, similarly onerous laws in recent weeks. Laws banning employers from asking candidates for employment about prior salary is another trend. Laws have been enacted in nine jurisdictions, and several other states are considering similar salary history bans. Another is a litigation uptick. Not surprisingly, concurrent with these new laws and developments, the SafeArth Pay Equity Group has seen an increased interest by the plaintiff's bar in litigation under the Federal Equal Pay Act and analogous state laws. The primary targets for this new wave of litigation have been firms in the legal and tech industries. Those cases are already generating new and intriguing law that has the potential to reshape the landscape of pay equity litigation, including whether and how these claims can be maintained as collective or class action lawsuits. A third trend is that the federal court circuit split on pay factors. Recent cases demonstrate that the federal circuit courts are split on whether prior salary can be used as a factor that justifies differences in pay under the Federal Pay Equity Act. Um, On April 9th, the Ninth Circuit changed course in an en blanc decision, which we covered uh, a couple weeks ago, and held that an employee's prior salary does not constitute a factor other than sex upon which a wage differential may be based under the statutory catch-all exemption to the Federal Equal Pay Act. That was Rizzo versus Uvino, and we covered that very well in an episode. Uh, Stay tuned to see this in the Supreme Court. It's going to make a change. Finally, a push towards greater transparency and more structure. The benefit to having more defined pay structures and being more transparent about pay is that it often helps demystify what has long been thought to be a taboo topic. Structure also provides an opportunity to reassure employees about their pay and if they are paid in line with their peers and helps employers identify any concerns that may have been unintentionally overlooked. 
Lastly, employers are weighing voluntary or mandatory, like in the UK, disclosures about pay. This raises additional concerns and at the same time provides additional opportunities. Safearth notes that it expects to see this trend continue. On our website, we have links to that federal, uh, you know, some different cases under the federal circuit courts that are split on whether prior salary can be used. We have a link to the course on, on uh, to the Rizzo versus Yovino case and information about the uh, some voluntary ways that you can do disclosures about pay among peer groups. Very interesting stuff. Hope that helps you out. Check us out at peopleprocesses.com. And while you're there, please subscribe. It really helps us out if you subscribe to the newsletter as well as the podcast. Next up, next best practice tip. This is a new report issued by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement um, that identifies the best practices for I-9 compliance. Since ICE is stepping up enforcement efforts of unauthorized workers by tripling its number of officers and quintupling the number of enforcement actions in 2018, as a result, employers need to be proactive and ensure that they are hiring authorized workers and that their Form I-9 practices are in compliance. Otherwise, employers may be ICE's next target, which we really don't want. Not fun. Under the Immigration Reform and Control Act, the IRCA, if an employer knowingly hires or continues to employ an unauthorized worker, it can be exposed to civil and criminal penalties. The IRCA applies to all entities, large and small, corporate and individual, regardless of the number of employees in the employer's workforce. Limited exemptions to the I-9 rule include individuals hired for domestic employment, uh, domestic employment that is sporadic, irregular, or intermittent, independent contractors authorized to work on the, in the U.S., B-1 domestic services, B-1 trainees on short-term training programs, and employees hired before November 7, 1986, and continuously employed since then. Finally, employees who are not physically working in the U.S. are also exempt. While it may seem daunting to stay current with the form's evolving technical requirements, the failure to do so may expose an employer to audits, fines, and criminal prosecution, which could actually include prison time, says Melissa A. Silver, legal editor at Expert HR. Um, DACA makes an, is, is, is a rough issue, though. One employment eligibility issue facing many employers is related to employees who are beneficiaries under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA. Keeping up with the legal developments regarding DACA is a challenge, period, and employers need to ensure that they stand, stay up to date on the continually evolving issue when verifying employment eligibility and authorization of new hires. Stay tuned on here. We'll keep you in the loop. You need to avoid discrimination. Another potential trap for employers is ensuring that they employ an authorized in in ensuring that they employ an authorized workforce. They need to avoid engaging in discrimination during the Form I-9 process. In order to ensure compliance, employers should take a few uh, actions. These five are kind of the key. One, closely follow the directions mandated on the Form I-9. Do not request any additional information or documents beyond what is mandated on Form I-9. Two. Allow employees to choose which of the improved documents the employee will be completing in Form I-9. Do not mandate that any particular document be presented by the employee. Three, wait until after the prospective employee has accepted employment offer before verifying the new hire's eligibility for work or requesting completion of Form I-9. Four, train employees involved in the Form I-9 process not to refuse to hire a prospective employee because he or she presented documentation that has a future expiration date. That's an important one. Uh, if they're currently illegal to work, that's good enough. Five, avoid making hiring, retention, or termination decisions on the basis of actual or perceived citizenship. Uh, 
actual or perceived citizenship status, national origin, or the employee's native language. All of those can be discriminatory. So in order to ensure compliance with the IRCA and the Form I-9 requirements, employers should establish uniform policies on top of these five uh, pieces that we just went over. You need to just document this and make this the standard policy, whether to copy and maintain records of supporting documents, how you're going to store the I-9 forms, how to address credible reports of suspected unlawful employment or fraudulent identity, and what is your retention and purging policy? How long do you keep the records, and what do you do to de destroy them? If you have questions about that, ask me on Facebook. I'd love to do an episode on that. I'm just not sure that anybody's particularly interested in those, but we're happy to answer some of those questions. With increased scrutiny on employers' hiring practices, especially on those of non-U.S. citizens, employers need to ensure that they verify the employment authorization and identity of new hires, explains Silver. Although challenging, having a Form I-9 compliance program and training personnel on properly completing the Form I-9 can help minimize the costly pitfalls of non-compliance. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, peopleprocesses.com, popularfinancial.com. We would love to hear from you. Have a wonderful day. My name is Rami Alijil. Go out there and get your work done.